So we're jumping into Judges chapter three. Judges chapter three is really kind of a transition chapter in Judges. Chapter one and chapter two, we kind of get the overview. Like this is what's going to be happening in the book of Judges. This is kind of the historical background. And then we really jump into it in Judges chapter three. We actually get our first judges. Up till now, we haven't seen a judge, but Judges chapter three is loaded. We'll actually get three judges tonight. And what we're going to see as we go through Judges chapter 3 is this. We're going to see four separate groups of people, or you could say four separate situations that people find themselves in, and there's truths in here for all of us when we find ourselves in those situations. I've found myself in every single one of them at some point during my life, and we will find ourselves in many of them as we go forward. Okay, so four groups of people or four situations, and then finally, a superhuman leader, okay? A superhuman leader. So let's jump right in. Here's what it says. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses." Judges chapter three opens, and what we find is there are a lot of people, there are a lot of foreign groups still in the promised land. But what's so interesting to me and what jumps right out at me as I read this is God has a plan to use those people. What does he say? He says, I'm going to use this, verse two, in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. We have all these people in the land and God says, I've got a plan to use this to teach you something great. And that really surprises me because Judges chapter one kind of tells a different story, right? When we're coming into the promised land, Moses tells the people, hey, when you get into the promised land, kick out all the people. Joshua reiterates that kick out all the people. Do not leave any people left. And then we see in Judges chapter one that they failed to do this. Judges chapter one, verse 21, but Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Chapter, verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. 28, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. 30, Zebulun did not, you guys get in the picture? So they failed to do what God told them to do And yet God has a plan to use even their failures. I think that's so cool. This is the first group of people that we see, the first situation we may occasionally find ourselves in, and it's this. They're suffering the negative consequences of past mistakes, and yet God still has a plan for that to move them forward in the direction that he wants to move them. He says he's going to use it to train them to know war. God can use even our past mistakes. My past mistakes don't keep God from having a plan for my future, right? 
This is really important for me to understand because we have these verses that we've memorized and they're good verses and they're true verses. Like Matthew 7, that says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, right? And we have Psalm 39 that says that Jesus leads us on the path everlasting. So we picture that this walk of faith is this pathway. And then we use these churchy terms like he walked away from God or he walked away from the faith. And what happens is I end up having a mental picture that I don't think is helpful. I visualize God's plan for my life as this straight path right here. These are when I make the right decisions and I'm walking with the Lord and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I have occasionally wandered off the path. I don't know if you ever have, but it's happened to me. Right? And I find myself way over here. And then just like judges, I'm like, this is not good over here. Like there's some bad stuff going on over here. This, I'm suffering some horrible consequences. And so I repent and I pray, Lord, come and help me. And I have this image like he comes and he grabs me by the hand and he walks me back over to the path. And he gets me here and then off I can go again. And then I mess up again and I walk over here and I pray and he walks me back over to the path. And, then, and I can feel like my Christian life is this yo-yo, right? Where I keep walking away and then he has to walk me back over. I don't think that's right. I think what happens is I walk away all too often. I find myself over here and I pray and I repent and God comes and stands right next to me and goes, sweet, let's move forward from here. I got a plan for where you are right now and we can move ourselves forward from here. Because when I keep thinking that God has to walk me back over there, well, first of all, that's impossible. You can't ever go back to where you were. Second of all, it's like that's small God mentality. Like God has to get me back to where I was in order to move me forward. Like that's, God is so much bigger than that. God has this plan. The people left the, the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hivites, they weren't supposed to do that. God goes, okay, new plan. New plan, I can use this. I can work with this. Because otherwise I end up spending too much time being like, man, if only. If only I hadn't done that, I would be walking forward on that path that God wants me to be on. If only I hadn't made that decision. If only I hadn't done that. And if only is so not helpful. Because what God wants us to say is, okay, now what? All right, Lord. Yes, I blew it. Yes, there's some negative consequences. I want to walk with you again. I want to proceed forward in my life with you. I want to go out and conquer the promised land. How are you going to move me from where I am now forward? How are we going to partner together? Right? It's what Paul says in Philippians 3. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to get what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, we'll find that God can even use our mistakes and turn them into something beautiful. He can even use our mistakes to train us. I think one of the best biblical examples of this is the story of Jonah. Okay, because there's a part of the story of Jonah that I've always had a little trouble believing, right? I'm good with the fish part, right? Where Jonah gets swallowed by the fish and then three days and then spit out alive. Like, I'm, I'm fine with that. I got no issues with that part. It's what happens afterwards. Jonah walks into a foreign city, 
preaches like a five word sermon and everybody repents. That's the miracle I can't really you know, get my head around. Because sermons are normally a little longer than five words. And uh, I've never really gotten a response like that. But when you really dive into it, it's so interesting what may have happened with Jonah. You see, the Ninevites were an extremely religious and superstitious people. They worshiped a god called Dagon, who was a fish man god. He was either a man who had been turned into a fish or a half man, half fish. Like some depictions are like man on top, fish on bottom, or, or fish on top. Man. There's a man fish thing going on with Dagon, okay? Highly superstitious culture. And so you gotta picture this. They worship this God called Dagon. There's all these fishermen down by the side of the sea. And then one day a massive fish swims up and spits a man out live on land. Like, whoa, that's quite the event. And it's very possible that he was suffering some negative consequences from, you know, like being inside of a fish for three days. Um, he's, all of his hair may have been eaten away by the fish stomach acid. It's very possible that he was completely naked and bleached white. Okay, so this is quite the sight. And he goes walking into the city, and before you know it, my guess is there's hundreds of people following him because this is how God orchestrated it. And he goes and he says, listen, Dagon's not real. Yahweh is real, and if you don't repent, he's gonna destroy your city, and everybody repents. And what we see is Jonah's grand mistake was used intricately by God in his plan. It's so cool. It's so important for us to understand that even when I'm suffering the negative consequences, and there's negative consequences, three days in the belly of a fish, not fun. I'm quite sure it was very, very miserable, right? Jonah doesn't ever want to do that again. And yet, God can use it. And God has a plan to use it. And it's so important for us to understand that. That even when I'm suffering the negative consequences of my own stupid decisions, that when I repent, God can meet me right where I am and we can move forward with a whole new plan and a whole new purpose. Psalm 39, 16 says, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they all were written the days fashioned for me. It does not say that the day you fashioned for me today is contingent upon all the things I did right yesterday. Today's a new day, and his mercies are new every morning. Right? So that's the first group of people we see. But the second group of people we see is interesting because if you study the timeline of Judges, what you'll see about this chapter is that about half of the generation that failed to kick out the people in chapter one are still alive. And the rest of the people land in the land are the children of that generation. So our second group of people is this. They're suffering the negative consequences of someone else's mistake. It's not their fault the people are still in the land. It's not their fault they're still having to live with the Hivites and the Sidonites and the Canaanites. They didn't make those poor choices, but they're still suffering the consequences. And God would say, even in that scenario, I can use that. And if we're suffering the negative consequences of someone else's mistakes, a parent, a spouse, a business partner, God says, I can still turn this for good. I can still use this to train you and to teach you and to move you forward in the pathway that I have for you. 
And a, a real quick note on this training idea, because I think this is so important for us to understand. Because God says here, he wants to train the people to know war. It's important to God. But very often when it comes to difficult circumstances, either of like my own making or because of someone else, I have a very different goal than God, right? Some difficulty, some challenge, some problem comes into my life. It disturbs my peace and my comfort. So that thing or circumstance or person is the problem. They need to be eliminated, pacified, or worked around so I can return to a place of peace and comfort, right? Discomfort is the problem. Peace is the goal. Therefore, removing the obstacle is the solution. And so all my effort, my energy, and my prayers go towards that. But what if that's not God's goal for the difficult circumstance that I find myself in? What if the problem isn't discomfort? What if the problem is people who don't know how to fight and defend themselves? What if the problem is that I don't battle for the oppressed and the underprivileged? What if the problem is people who let society train wreck their kids, people who won't fight? Well, if the problem is people who won't fight, then the goal isn't a return to comfort. The goal is a church full of warriors. And the very thing that's causing us discomfort is the thing God's going to use to accomplish his purpose of training us. God's goal is so often very different than mine. My goal is to get back to my place of comfort. God's goal is to make me a man of war. You know, and we struggle with this idea of war. It's very, uh, it's very not woke to talk about war, but it carries all the way through the Bible. God says, this is a battlefield. This is a battleground. Put on the whole armor of Christ. Go out and fight for the oppressed. Go out and fight for your family. Go out and fight for your community. And he wants to train us to do that. And this negative consequence that I'm suffering, maybe it's from my own stupid mistakes. Maybe it's from something someone else did. God says, I will use that. I will use that to train you to be a man of war, a woman of war, a church of war who can go out and fight when they need to, right? It's so cool. All right, so those are our first two groups. You have the group who is suffering the negative consequences of their own stupid mistakes, and you have the group who's suffering the negative consequences of someone else's mistakes. But in both cases, God says, I can use this. I can train you by it, and we can walk forward together from the place we find ourselves at now. Okay, now we go to the third group. It's this. Verse five, it says, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Chushan Rishathayim eight years. Group number three is the group that has been enslaved by their own sin. People who are enslaved, caught up in, contained by, controlled by their sin. And if we're honest, we've all been there at some point. 
where something is owning me, something's enslaving me, and I can't seem to shake it. And it's so cool what this chapter does because first of all, it tells us how these people got there. Okay, how did they get to a place where they were enslaved, right? Well, we start with them failing to do the things that they're told to do. What were they told to do in chapter one? Kick the people out of the land. What were they told to do from Moses, from Joshua? Kick the people out of the land and they fail to do that. This is always the first step to when I find myself enslaved by something, is if I fail to do the things that I'm told to do. The Bible has a lot of things it tells us to do, doesn't it? Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Go to church, and we're doing it, awesome. Early in the morning I will seek you, says the word. It says pray, rise early and pray. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, the Bible says. Study it. Be a person of devotion. Be a person of study. Take care of widows and orphans, the Bible says. Give. Be a people of service, right? There's a lot of things in here that the Bible tells us to do. But it's not this list of rules and regulations to keep us in check. And we have to get this. The Bible is filled with instructions so that we can thrive. Okay, it'd be like this. If you've ever bought a plant or a packet of seeds, they come with instructions, right? So pretty soon we're gonna go out and we're gonna get our tomato plants, probably sooner rather than later if this keeps up. So we're gonna get our tomato plants, you're gonna come home with your tomato plant, you're gonna flip it over on the back of some instructions. Instructions are gonna say things like, plant in full sun, water regularly, fertilize once a month, trim off branches that are unnecessary. Now you can look at that list of instructions and be like, well, that's just really legalistic. You know, I'm just gonna take you a little plant, I'm gonna put you in the garden. All you need is love and affection, right? I'm just gonna speak words of affirmation over you little plant. Don't let anybody tell you you're not good enough. You just do your thing. How's that plant gonna do? Is it gonna thrive? Is it gonna produce fruit? Or is it going to wither and die? And if not, it's gonna be susceptible to disease and pests, isn't it? See, the Bible has this list of instructions for us and it's not because God wants to control us, it's because he wants us to thrive. He just wants us to thrive in the land. That's why he told the people to kick the Canaanites out so they could thrive and they don't. And when we fail to do the instructions in the word, it's when we're starting to slide down that path away from thriving and towards enslavement. It happens to me all the time. Less and less as I get older, I pray, but I can see it. I can see it in my life. I can see it in other people's lives. So that's the first thing they do. These people who are enslaved, they fail to do the things they're told to do. And then secondly, they do the things that they're not told to do. It says in verse six and five, so the people of Israel lived among them, verse six, and gave their daughters and took them for wives. Like, they were told explicitly, do not intermarry with these people, right? Because when you marry, you marry the whole family, right? We all know this, okay? We have to be very careful. God says, don't do this. So after Israel fails to do the things God told them to do, the next step is always they start doing the things they're told 
not to do. Man, this is me. This is so me. I'm either doing the things I've been told to do or I begin doing the things I've been told not to do. There's no middle ground. I've never been able to find a middle ground in my life. I've never seen someone find a middle ground in their life. I'm either a person of prayer or I'm a person of impatience. I, I, there's, there's, no, there's no middle for me, right? I'm either a person who seeks God first, which seems to line up all my other priorities, my wife, my family, my job, my church. When I seek God first, like I'm told, all the other ones line up. When I don't, all of a sudden I'm just seeking me. Judges makes this super simple and super clear. If you do what God asks you to do, then avoiding what you're not supposed to do kind of takes care of itself. It kind of takes care of itself. If they had kicked the people out of the land, they wouldn't have been bothered to intermarry with them, would they? This principle I try to apply whenever I'm seeking like behavioral change in my own life. Instead of concentrating on what not to do, I try to look and see what I'm not doing. Right? Instead of trying to be like, I need to eat less, or I need to be angry less, or I need to lose my temper, or I need to be more, I, I'd be, okay, Lord, what am I not doing? Am I not rising in the morning and spending time with you? Am I not in your word? Am I not around God's people? Because if I'm not thriving, it's because I'm not following the instructions that you've given me and walking with you correctly. So we don't really need to spend a bunch of time figuring out how to not do the things we're not supposed to do. We just need to do the things we're supposed to do. That's what Judges makes clear over and over and over again to me. Okay, so they have failed, they've yeah, failed to do what they're supposed to do. They started doing what they're not supposed to do. And then third is this, they've decided to create their own sense of morality. Look at verse seven, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We are going to see that phrase over and over and over again in Judges. And it's supposed to cue in us this juxtaposition with another phrase that we'll see in Judges, which is this. There was no king in the land and every person did what was right in their own sight. And the real question is, who's the judge? Do I get to do what's right in my own sight or do I pay attention to what's right in God's sight? Because the implication here is if you were to ask these people if what they were doing was right, they'd say, yeah, we're doing right. And what God says is, no, that's evil. What you're doing is evil. You don't get to make your own sense of morality. Right? You can't just decide what's right and wrong for yourself. This is always the progression of sin. This is the progression of sin in the garden. Okay? You start by finding Adam and Eve not doing what they're supposed to be doing. What did God say? Be fruitful and multiply and tend the garden. What are they doing? They're just standing around the tree they're not supposed to be standing around. Like, hey, what are we doing? Not what we're supposed to be doing, right? Then what do they do next? What they're not supposed to? They eat the tree. And then thirdly, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They say, you know what? We get to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, don't we? And then immediately afterwards, they find themselves enslaved, right? 
For the rest of life, Adam is a slave to the land. It produces briars, it's hard, it's, thanks Adam, right? Always the progression of sin. We see this in society, don't we? I mean, this is so evident in our society right now. The people have decided to create their own sense of morality. Like we legalize, we didn't legalize, we decriminalized hard drugs. Go Oregon, I mean Portland, but whatever, right? You're pregnant, you don't wanna be. Hey, we have a solution for you. Cohabitation, I mean, this is where our society is. And it's really easy for us to stand back and point our fingers at those big ones. Be like, yep, that's it. That's calling good evil and calling evil good and creating your own sense of morality. But it can be so much more subtle than that. It can be so much more creepy as it comes into our lives. And I know that I'm creating my own sense of morality when I start giving explanations or justifying why I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing or why I'm doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. When I find myself justifying either of those two things, I've decided I'm judge and it's my morality that matters. I get to do what's good in my sight and not what's good in God's sight. I don't have time for morning devotions. That's when I go to the gym. You know, and I need to go to the gym. It gets my head right for the day. Okay, so I'm judge. This is what I think is right for me. Doesn't matter what God thinks is right for me. This is what I think is right for me. You know, I go out drinking with my buddies because it's my only chance to connect with them and stay involved in their lives. It's good. It's a good thing. There's, there's a good outcome, Lord. It's good, Lord. It really is. It really isn't. It really isn't. You know, I watch that show because it's what everyone's talking about, and I don't want to seem like an outsider. Okay. So now I'm judge. And I've decided to create my own sense of morality. And it's a lot more subtle than decriminalizing hard drugs, and it's just as dangerous. Because now I decide what's right. And I very quickly find myself in the book of Judges doing what's right in my own eyes. And there's no king in the land. And the next thing I know, I'm enslaved. The next thing I know, I'm enslaved. But what's so great about Judges, what's so great about this chapter three is just how it shows us that how people got into the enslavement, it also shows us how they get out of it. That's good, right? We want both sides of that picture because if I find myself enslaved to sin, I really want to know how to get out of it. So it goes on to say this. It's so beautiful. It is verse nine. It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Chishon Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Chishon Rishathayim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. If there is one thing we're going to look, learn from the book of Judges, it's this. If you're enslaved, you need a deliverer. When we find ourselves enslaved, if you know someone who's enslaved, they need a deliverer. We don't need a self-help podcast or a positive affirmation book or a how-to YouTube video. We don't even need a program. As good as those can be, but without a deliverer, it's not going 
to work. When we find ourselves enslaved, we need a deliverer. And we have been, we have been given a deliverer, haven't we? I mean, amen. God said he came to set the captives free. That's what Jesus tells us. He says, I've come so you could have life and life more abundantly. Jesus says, I am your deliverer. If you're looking for a picture of Jesus in this passage, it's this guy, Othniel, here. He's the deliverer. And when the people cry out, the deliverer shows up. Every time in Judges, when the people repent, God sends the deliverer. God is the hero of the book of Judges. He never gets tired of his people and he just waits patiently for them to repent. Once they repent, a deliverer is sent. And the time frame there is completely up to the people. Because here's what it says. It says, he sold them into the hand of Chushan, Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Chushan, Rishathiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out, a deliverer came. Eight years. They sinned, they found themselves enslaved, they stayed enslaved for eight years until they cried out and God sent a deliverer. The time frame is always up to us. It's always up to us. How long is it going to be? Eight years? The second half of this chapter, it's 18 years. The beginning of chapter four, it's 20 years. By the time we get to Samson, it's 40 years of enslavement before the people will call out and repent. I need a deliverer. I need to be delivered from this. How long? How long do I wait? A day? A week? Eight years? 40 years? The deliverer has been sent. Jesus has conquered sin and death on the cross. And if we're enslaved to sin, he's just waiting for us to cry out. But you might say, I have cried out. I have fallen on my knees. I have said, Lord, save me from this sin and I'm still stuck in it. What do you say about that? What do you say about that? I think it's so interesting what happens when Israel cries out for the deliverer. Because it says, if you read this, that God raised up Othniel, the son of Canaz, and he led the people into war. Othniel, the deliverer, did not come in and single-handedly wipe out the problem. He did not come in and single-handedly get rid of Chushan Rithathayam and free the people. What he did, what the deliverer so often does in my life, is he will lead me into battle. The question is, not only have I cried out, but have I followed my king into battle? Have I gone to war against that thing that's oppressing me, that's enslaving me, that's holding me back? And a war has many battles. Because we can have a victory and then become lax, but that's not how you win a war, is it? You continue to fight and you continue to battle until the war is completely won. The thing that's so great about being a child of the King, of King Jesus, is this. Romans 8.37 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. 
I like to shorten this verse all the way down and just say, victory is assured. If you follow King Jesus into battle, victory is assured. The work was done on the cross. Death and sin has been defeated. But God's question to us now as our deliverer is, will you follow me into battle? This is not dealing with salvation. The work of salvation Jesus did. We have no part in that. We accept it, we believe it, we acknowledge him as king. This is talking about this process of our lives going and becoming more like him in this promised land that we're in now and saying, will you follow me into battle over those things that are oppressing you? Those things that are holding you back? Those things that are enslaving you and keeping you from serving me completely? Will you follow me into battle against them? Because if you will, victory is assured. That's our third group of people. The third group of people is this. They're the group of people who is enslaved by their sin because they failed to do what they were supposed to do. They did what they weren't supposed to do. I've made my own sense of morality. And now the question is, how long will I wait until I cry out and follow my king into an assured victory? Right? We also see, I think, and I might be stretching a little bit here, so bear with me, but I also think we see the fourth group of people here because it says that the children of Israel went out to war. And I know there had to be people in these armies or in the lines that supported the armies who had not given their daughters and their sons to be married, who had not sinned. Maybe they weren't even that oppressed by Chushan Rishathayam. I mean, maybe they own some little farm out somewhere and all they have to do is bring a little fruit and this really isn't a problem for them. But here's the principle we have to understand. When God's people are under attack, God's people go to war. That person you know, that son, that daughter, that friend who's been enslaved by sin, when they decide they're ready for a redeemer, for a deliverer, and they're ready to go to battle with Jesus, are you ready to go into battle next to him? Are you ready to go with him? Are you ready to fight alongside of him for a long war? Are we ready to be long-suffering with them? Because when God's people are under attack, God's people go to war, all of them, and we all fight together. And there's so many ways we can be involved in the battle. I've been reading, um, I've been nerding out on World War II because I like history. And one of the things I find so interesting is they say for every person on the front lines, it took 17 people to support that. Some of us can sit here and be like, well, we're not a front lines warrior. I'm not a front line battler. That doesn't mean you're not part of the war effort, Right? We can be givers. We can be cooks. We can be nurses, right? I mean, do you have the gift of counseling? Do you need to, to grab these people who've been beat up in the battle and listen to them and pray with them and encourage them and then send them back out to fight again? You're the nurse in this battle, in this war we're in. Because God's people, our kids, our families, they're under attack. And when God's people are under attack, God's people go to war. Amen? Okay, so that's what we've got. We've got these four groups of people, and then now we're going to get a superhuman leader, 
All right, I'm gonna read a bunch of verses, but it's a super fun story. One of the things I always love to remember about Judges is um, that Judges was probably written down by Samuel. Judges spans probably almost 400 years. So for a long time, all of these would have been Israel's stories, okay? This is the one I picture all the, the middle school boys loving, okay? If you don't know this story, you'll get it in a minute, right? I just picture a bunch of middle school boys being like, Dad, tell us the story about the fat king again, okay? So here it is. Yeah, oh, you'll get it, all right? If you have a middle school boy, you'll really get it. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms and the people of Israel served Eglon and the king of Moab 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, that's about 18 inches, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from him. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. That's what it says. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fjords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. The story of Ehud. Cool story, right? I mean, not what you typically expect on a Wednesday night, 
but it's in the Bible. The Bible just doesn't go over the messy parts. This is a great story. It's a funny story. If you don't think it's funny, then you missed it, right? It's funny. (laughs) But there's this thing in this story that I'm like, I just don't get, okay? Because it says that he was a left-handed man and he strapped the sword to his right thigh and that like, that's how we got access into the throne room. Like, are these the world's dumbest bodyguards? Like, I, I just kind of picture them trying to answer for themselves. Like, how did you let someone in here? Be like, I don't know, he was, he was left-handed and he had a sword strapped to his right thigh. And oh, uh, well, I mean, obviously, you never check the right thigh, no one ever does that, it's okay. What's going on here? If you read this, if you look at some of the original language, there's a suggestion, and I think it's probably accurate, that it doesn't mean he was just left-handed in the way we would term being left-handed. The terminology here, or the phrasing, is that he was forced to use his left hand, or only left-handed, or he was only capable of using his left hand. The implication is he's crippled. He's either missing an arm, or he has a withered arm, or he is some other way only capable of using his left hand. And he becomes God's choice of a judge for Israel. And I think that's so great. Because so often I think of a judge and I think of Samson, right? Like superhuman strength. Like you gotta be superhuman to be used by God. Ehud's not superhuman. He's like superhuman. Like he's just as broken and crippled as the rest of us, possibly more so. I mean, if he'd have tried to join the army, they probably wouldn't have let him join. He may have spent his life being told he wasn't capable of much, he wasn't good enough. He's clearly very non-threatening. No one thinks he's capable of anything. And yet he's the person that God uses to lead Israel to victory. Because Ehud had a couple things that really matter. First, he had the spirit of God. As we read through Judges, you're gonna hear this over and over and over. The spirit of the Lord came upon The spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. The spirit of the Lord came upon Ehud. The spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. In the Old Testament, that's an extremely special and amazing thing and a rare event. And if you were to ask people in the Old Testament, man, what would it be like if everybody who believed had the spirit of God, they'd be like, it would be unbelievable. And yet now everyone who believes has the spirit of God. There's no junior varsity spirit We're filled with the same spirit that Othniel's filled with, that Ehud is filled with. We're filled with God's spirit in that way. And sometimes we sit back and we're like, dude, I'm not the right dude, God. Like, I'm crippled, I'm broken from maybe past mistakes, from maybe past failings, from maybe something someone did to me. Like, I'm not the person who should be used. And God's like, you're exactly the person I'm gonna use. You're exactly the person I wanna use for this. And all I need you to do is make a decision that you've had enough. Because I just, I love this mental image of Ehud sitting there making this knife and being like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna kill that dude. He has oppressed my people. He has messed up our lives. I am taking him out. He doesn't tell anybody. He's just like, I am taking this thing down. I've got the spirit of God and I'm gonna make a decision that enough is enough. And I'm not letting this crippled arm thing wear me down or hold me back. 
And so he makes a decision and he goes. I think we need more people like that. It doesn't matter how crippled I am. I've got the spirit of God. I just need to decide enough is enough. I'm gonna take action. I'm gonna go do something about this. And what's super cool is after he kills the king, look what happens. He comes to lead the people and it says that all the children of Israel came up with him and they went to this mountain pass and they kept the Moabites from crossing it. They killed 10,000 of them. What it doesn't say is that it was some miraculous event like the parting of the Red Sea or like God bringing in locusts or like God leaving the sun up all day long. I mean, we see those events, right? But this is a totally normal battle. I believe the implication here is Israel always had the power to overthrow the Moabites. They just needed someone to lead them. And I think it's very much possible that it's Ehud's crippledness that made him such a good leader. He was superhuman. People are like, dude, Ehud killed the king? I can take on a couple Moabites. I can do this. There was this really great interview years ago, and um, it was somebody interviewing Chuck Smith, the guy who started Calvary Chapel. And at the time, Calvary Chapel and John MacArthur's church down in Southern California were the two big churches. And they were both growing, but the distinction was Calvary Chapel was planning churches like crazy. Like to this date, there's 1,800 Calvary Chapels around the world. Okay, I did a Google search for it the other day. I couldn't see if John MacArthur's church had ever planted another church. Great church, great Bible teaching. But someone asked Chuck Smith, how have you been so successful planting churches when John MacArthur hasn't? And Chuck Smith said, well, when you listen to John MacArthur preach, you think, oh my goodness, that is amazing. That is incredible. I could never do that. He says, when people listen to me preach, they go, I could do that. <laughs> and so they do. And so they do. 1,800 of them have, right? I think this is so important for us to get because sometimes we think we have to be superhuman for God to use us to lead people. And sometimes God's like, I don't even want the superhuman. I need someone who's superhuman, broken, crippled, all the rest. All I need you to do is have my spirit and be willing to stand up. And I'm gonna use you in amazing ways and people will follow you, not because you're amazing, but because you're not. Because you're broken like everyone else, because you're just superhuman and God will use you. And God uses Ehud to set his people free and the land had rest for 80 years. It's a cool little chapter. It's a great thing that it tells us. I mean, there's all these situations we find ourselves in. I mean, my big takeaway for me from this chapter is like, no matter what I've done in the past or what situation I find myself in now, God wants to use it to train me and to move me forward. And man, if I want to avoid becoming enslaved, like just keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It will avoid me getting into a situation where I'm doing the things I'm not. And if I find myself making excuses for not doing the things I'm doing, I better be really careful because I'm starting to become my own sense of morality. And when I walk away and it's going to happen to me again, I pray it doesn't. Maybe I won't go very far. Man, the minute I decide to cry out, Lord, I lost my temper. I'm going down that path. I'm just, you ever come home just in a mood, right? 
You can right then be like, all right, I need a deliverer. I need to be delivered from this mood because there's going to be some sinning going on in this house and it's going to be done by me. I need a deliverer. And we can cry out for that. We don't have to wait for years. We don't have to wait for hours. We can cry out immediately and our deliverer will show up and he will lead us into an assured victory if we follow him into battle. But I'm broken, but I'm crippled. How could I? You're perfect. You're exactly the person God wants to use because God uses super humans, just like me and you. Amen? God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what you've shown us here in Judges, for what you want to teach us in your word. Thank you for using people like us to accomplish your kingdom and to build your kingdom and to show people your love and grace. May we be people filled with your spirit, ready to stand up and take action when we say enough is enough. Be with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.